If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Matthew, chapter 28, looking at verses 16 through 20 this morning. If you have a bulletin, you can open that up, and inside you'll see the outline and structure of where we're headed this morning. Jesus Christ has all authority to send empowered witnesses to reach lost nations with the news of the resurrection. That's the main point of the section that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus Christ has all authority to send empowered witnesses to reach lost nations with the truth of the resurrection. The very God who saves those whom he has chosen and has sent the Spirit to make new in terms of their souls, that they might be able to have faith and believe the gospel is the very same God who then sends those people who now believe into the world so that the world might hear the good news of the gospel. Now, for this morning, what we're going to do is take that big theme and we're just going to apply it in a slightly different way as we talk about the reality of the Trinity and how that is such a fundamental aspect of that message. The author, in fact, gives us four pictures here in this section of what a relationship with God looks like as it relates to his kingdom and how it is that we are able to know him, how it is that we are able to actually have this relational communication with the God of the universe. Christians are fond of saying things like, you need to have a personal relationship with God. Well, everyone has a personal relationship with God. The difference is, for some, it's a relationship of mercy and grace and forgiveness, and for others, it's a relationship of wrath and judgment. Everybody is personally known by God. Nobody is off God's radar. Nobody is unknown to God. Nobody is lacking in their relationship to God. The question for the Christian is not, do you have a relationship with God? It's, how do you have a relationship with God? And that's what's revealed to us in this text. And there are going to be four words that I'd like to use to help just sort of guide us through this this morning. The first word is worship. The second word is power. The third word is love. And the fourth word, this is important because if you really understand the way that this is going to play out for us, is fellowship. So the first word is worship, then power, then love, then fellowship. Now if you've had an opportunity to turn there, I'm going to read the passage this morning. This is God's word, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In his excellent book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves makes the following summary statement that I thought is helpful as we begin. He says this, quote, to know the Trinity is to know God, an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty, interest, and fascination. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. Question this morning is, do you know him and are you growing in your knowledge of him? This is something that the disciples themselves were wrestling with. It was something that we have to acknowledge they weren't always doing with precision. They weren't even always doing it with very much faith. And that opens up to us right at the very beginning because Matthew, who is writing this particular account, who, remember, was an eyewitness to what happened in Jesus' ministry, begins this very last section of his gospel with a rather embarrassing admission. He says in the first point on worship here that the disciples, the 11, had come out to Galilee, to the place where the Lord had said to wait. And there, once again, he appeared to them and they worshiped, but some doubted. Every time there's a gathering of worshipers, there are some doubters. And Matthew's being very honest about this. Matthew is not trying to whitewash how things went. He wasn't writing the, the authorized biography where all of the truth about the person that isn't very flattering gets scrubbed away. No, this is very, very honest. He's being very clear with us. And I believe that among some of the doubters, there's more than one. It was among the disciples. These 11, remember Judas has already committed suicide. He has already rejected Christ. The 11 that remain, even among them, there are some who doubt. It's not just Thomas. We all know doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas gets a very bad rap in the Bible. He did a lot of other good things too, but you know, you're only remembered for the negative one. But there were others who doubted. And so they come and they worship, but as with any time people worship, there are some who are still struggling with this. And I want to tell you, there are three kinds of doubt that I see in the New Testament. Three kinds of doubt. Uh, there are three different words in the original language, and unfortunately, the English keeps calling them doubt. So we don't really know which is which when we read an English translation, but I, I do want you to know this because it's really important. Uh, first of all, there's the kind of doubt that means you haven't just made up your mind yet. So if you uh, jot down Jude verse 22, it says, uh, have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, that's a word that means that you haven't yet been convicted of something or convinced of something. You're, you're still kind of going back and forth in your mind. Do I really believe this or not? That's one form of doubt. There's another form of doubt, and this comes up actually in Matthew's gospel. It's Matthew 14, verse 31. And, and in that particular case, the situation is rather dramatic. Uh, this is the situation where um, Peter's walking on the water, and uh, he begins to look around, and he begins to see that the storm is threatening him, and he begins to sink. 
And as he is sinking, as he is thinking that it's over for him, as he thinks he's going to drown, Jesus reaches out, takes him by the hand, pulls him up, and he says, why did you doubt? Now this is a doubt that is an inability to take decisive action. Uh, this is a doubt that says, I'm not sure if I can believe this or not. I'm not sure if I can act or not. If you were to look at it sort of graphically depicted, it would be a person who gets to a fork in the road and they're leaning one way and then the other. They're not sure which direction to take. So you've got some people who doubt because they haven't made up their minds, some people who doubt because they haven't picked a side yet. And then there's another kind of doubt, and this one comes up in Luke chapter 24 and verse 38. And, and this is a... Um, a debate that goes on in your mind. A debate that goes on in your mind. A dialogue that goes on in your mind. If you're the type of person who talks to themselves, then you can relate to this. If you're the kind of person who has to work through something by actually speaking out loud as you do it step by step, then you are just articulating what goes on most of the time in our heads. How many of you have a dialogue going on in your head? Some of you can't get to sleep at night because you're having a dialogue going on in your head. Sometimes it's with you. Sometimes it's with another person. You're even arguing with somebody in your mind. You're having an imaginary discussion. Some of us have the benefit of minds that can be emptied completely. To where our spouse will look at us and they'll say, what are you thinking? And I respond, okay, it's me. With the words, nothing. To which I get this look like, how is that possible? And I say, it's a gift. Like, there's nothing going on right now in my mind. <laughs> there's a doubt that, that is a, a, a mental conversation going on. Those are the three kinds. So you've got the, I'm not sure if it's true. You've got the, I'm not sure if I should do this or not. And you've got this constant dialogue going on in your mind. It's the second one that's in view here. It's that doubting that has to do with action. It's the only other place that word is used in the New Testament. The first example was with Peter, who was drowning, he thought, and the other example is here with the disciples. Why do I belabor that point? For this reason. I want you to understand that these disciples were not so much doubting their eyes. They weren't saying to themselves, I don't believe this is real. I don't believe he's really resurrected. I don't really believe he's the Messiah. The doubt that they were struggling with was the doubt as to whether or not they could really trust him to take the actions he was going to call them to do. Could they really trust him and really follow him? One of the reasons why he says, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, is because he knew that in their weakness, they wouldn't have the strength to go out and do it on their own, and neither do we. You see, worship isn't always just the act of the overflow of the heart and praise to God. It is also sometimes the act of overcoming the doubt that keeps us from obeying. Do you realize that there are times where you're going to come to church and you don't really want to be here? You're going to go because that's what you know the Lord has instructed you to do. It's what it means to be obedient to him. But you're going to come in, your heart is cold, your mind is distracted, you're tired, you've had a bad morning, you don't really want to talk to anybody, you're, you're not in a pleasant mood, you're not pleasant to be around, you had a fight with your spouse in the car on the way over, you're busy screaming at your kids until you open the door and someone's in the parking lot and then all of a sudden everyone's smiling. 
You're sitting here, and it's just not where you want to be. And isn't it amazing that as you sing and hear the people around you sing, your heart warms, and by the time you finally do leave after the service is over, you know that you've been ministered to by God. How does one overcome this doubt? They, they, they overcome it by yielding to what the Lord has said will fill you. In Ephesians 5, where it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, the context of that filling is through singing and being encouraged by those around you who sing hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. Worship. That's the first way in which we know that we have this, this relationship, if you will. The second way, though, is through power. Uh, notice what Jesus said. He is not shy about where he's coming from. He says this, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is all power. All power. All authority. And he says here that it is over both heaven and earth. You see, it is not restricted spatially. Uh, heaven is... Matthew's favorite word for, for describing where God lives. That's his abode. It is heaven that was opened up at the baptism when the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and rests upon the Lord Jesus. It was into heaven that Stephen looked as he was being martyred. It was from heaven that the voice of God the Father comes down and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. It is in heaven that things are happening now that Jesus says we ought to pray would also be done on earth. You see, in heaven is where his kingdom is. In heaven is where he reigns. In heaven is where he rules. And in heaven is where he lives. Heaven is God's abode. When we talk about heaven being our ultimate destiny, we actually confuse what Jesus had taught so clearly. Our eternal destiny is in a resurrected body on a new earth. His abode is in heaven. All authority stretches throughout heaven and the heavens and the universe, but it also is in the contrasting area, which is the earth. This fallen earth. His authority is over all the earth as well, and his whole ministry relates to that because we see that he shows dominion and authority over three crucial areas. And I'm just going to give them to you, and you can jot these down and do a study on your own. I think you'd find it really profitable. But when you look at his ministry, it covers these three areas. The first one is physical, and it's disease. There was never a person Jesus encountered who he couldn't heal. Nobody was ever partially healed. Nobody ever tried to get healed and couldn't because Jesus wasn't strong enough. Disease. He basically eradicated it from every place that he went. The second one, and this is more spiritual, is demons. Demons. In fact, if you go back into Luke chapter 10, you'll see that Jesus even delegates the authority to cast out demons to his apostles it was one of the signs that the kingdom had come in the sense that Jesus was able with a word to show his power over the demons. The demons roam a fallen earth and our Lord has authority and power over them. You never have to worry about a demon having power over you. You never have to worry about a demon having authority over you. You never have to worry about being possessed by a demon. You don't have to go out there trying to identify demonic forces. You certainly don't have the authority nor the invitation 
to pray some sort of prayer binding demons or exercising some authority over demons. If you really are dealing with demons, it's much more likely that you will experience the same thing that people did in the Bible who tried that, and you'll have to run out of the house beaten up and naked. Demons don't listen to you. They don't listen to your prayers, no matter whose name you pray it in. The only authority that demons submit to is the authority of Christ. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. Okay? Disease, demons, and I got one more, and it's going to be a D because it has to be alliterated. And there have to be three of them. And it's death. Death. Jesus showed, I've got all authority in heaven and earth over death. He says that I am the one who holds in my hand the keys to death and hell. I am the one who is able to raise up from the dead those whom I decide to raise up. He had the power of resurrection, even the power to resurrect himself. You see the Trinity involved, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in the raising up of Jesus himself. He had power over disease, power over demons, power over death. He says to these disciples, you must understand that your relationship with me is the relationship with one whom you ought to worship because I have all power in the universe. It has been given to him. And if you were to look at the actual grammar, you'll see that it is given already to him. It's already been done. He's already been granted this. There is nothing yet that has to happen except the celebration of that coronation. Just earlier in the month of May, there was a coronation for an earthly human king. That king became the king. That king assumed the title when the previous monarch died. At that moment, that man became king. But it was several weeks before the coronation occurred. It was several weeks before the crown was put on his head and everybody saw that he was now the king and all the celebration, all the fanfare. It's much the same way. Christ is the king. He is the ruling authority in the universe. And when he returns and the new heavens and the new earth are established and his rule and reign is seen from the new Jerusalem, he will be crowned and it will be from a throne that he reigns not from a temple, because the temple will be everywhere. He will be with us. There won't be a need for a temple. There will be a throne, and he will rule from it. And that is when everyone will see what is already true right now. <laughs> That's when everybody will see what is already true right now. Worship, power, and here's the third, love. <laughs> it's an amazing biblical truth that we're able to compare power with love. You see, power isn't threatening if it comes from one who loves. And Christ says that he is the epitome of that. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There's a great deal here to be unpacked, but let me begin by saying this. The, the word go could be translated as you're going. As you're going. The assumption is they're already going. It doesn't mean now go from this point forward and do something. He's saying just in your going, in your everyday going, as a consequence of my power and authority, 
as a consequence of being raised from the dead and being worthy of your worship, as a consequence of the help I'm going to be so you can stop doubting and shifting your weight from one foot to the other, not sure what direction to go to. As a result of all of that, he says, I want you in your going to be able to do something, no matter where you are, whether you're at home, whether you're at the gym, whether you're at work, whoever you're encountering, you're going. So in your everyday going, you need to be doing this. You need to be making disciples. And that word disciples just means learners. Make learners. When the Bible talks about discipleship, it's instruction. It's helping people learn. Let me just make a quick comment about discipleship. In my observation, there's, there's two kinds of results in discipleship that people appear to be aiming for. One is that it makes you more like Christ as you learn more about him. The other is it makes you more like your discipler as you learn more about your discipler. We're not trying to make people into little us, people who just do things the way we do it, disciple them in our ways and in our choices. Real discipleship, biblical discipleship, takes the eyes off of the person, as a matter of fact, and just says, the only way you're going to follow me is you're going to follow me as I follow Christ. Learn him. Make learners. And in this, I want you to see that it's the love of God that infuses it. The love of God infuses the privilege of knowing him. We can know him because he loved us enough to reveal himself to us. That's an amazing condescension. We are able to love, able to have the same experience of knowing him that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have because he has revealed himself to us in love. He says, therefore, make disciples, learners of all the nations. By about Matthew chapter 1, uh, 21, verse 43, there is this shift from calling them Gentiles to calling them nations. And the reason for that is that Jesus has said that of all these people that you're going to teach about me, you're going to teach them all over the known world. We saw that in the book of Acts. We were talking about that earlier, that the gospel had gone to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Why is that? That's because the kingdom is no longer focused on just the Jews. The kingdom was now focused on the Jews and the Gentiles, on all the nations, and anything that divided them had been torn down. So when you go to make learners of all the nations, you are fulfilling God's design to bring the gospel to the entire world. This is how you know him and help others know him. In Ephesians chapter 2, there's this amazing statement by Paul, and I just want to read it to you in its entirety because it sets the stage beautifully. This is what, what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a bleak forecast. That's us. If you're a Gentile today... That was you. That was your condition. But, notice what he says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one 
and is broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that's the ceremonial law, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. So what is he saying? He's saying that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together devised this eternal covenant of redemption to pull into their very relational love all of those whom they had chosen before the foundation of the world. And that by the Father's decree, through the work of the Son, applied with the Spirit, you are made firstborn sons of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. All the nations. Notice what you're supposed to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the first thing we see is that we can know him. The second thing we see is that we can love him. You're to love him because he invites you into that. Baptize them, notice it, actively into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that is not just a formula that we use when we baptize people. What's that meant to do is it's meant to to signify, to symbolize being immersed into. That's what the word baptize means. Immersed into, placed into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, where do we get that idea from? Let me take you to a very special meeting that Jesus had with the disciples back over in John chapter 17. I want to take you to the upper room, to the time of the Last Supper, to the time when Jesus was praying for his disciples. And I want you to see what Jesus says about the love relationship we're invited into. What does Jesus say about it? Let's listen in to Jesus as he prays to his father on behalf of his disciples. John chapter 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples that were there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So they're going to go out, they're going to preach, and some are going to believe. That's some of us today. Verse 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ himself is tying together the concept of the eternal love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the gracious invitation for you to know them the way they know each other. Now, this is beyond our intellectual comprehension. Much of it needs to be taken on faith. We have to believe it because that's what Scripture teaches. But if you think that somehow the relationship with God is just some cold, contractual situation where he tells you what to do and and you obey and you get the rewards as a result and you keep him from being angry with you, then I believe you've missed the entire motivation for it. The motivation to know him is that you might love him. That is why, as Jesus gives his final commission to these disciples, they worship him because he empowers them to know him And knowing him is loving him. In fact, if you were to just look at this in your bulletin, I gave you three summary statements. His love means we can know him. (laughs) That's just a grace from God. Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24 says, Don't boast in your riches or in your strength or in your wisdom. If you're going to boast in anything, boast in this, that you know God. (laughs) If there's anything that you should be boasting about, if there's anything to be happy about, proud about, it's that God chose to make himself known to you. It's not your wealth. It's not your wisdom. It's not your strength. It's your relationship with God. Secondly, his love means that we can love him. First John 4, 19, I'm sure you've all memorized this at one point. We love because he first loved us. You see, he was the first actor He loved us, and therefore we can love him. We talked earlier about Jude and the fact that some doubt. It's very interesting that in Jude 20 and 21, he connects the the love of God to overcoming doubt. And then finally, his love means we can please him. We see that in the last part of this section, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's a teaching that goes on. Discipleship is teaching. Evangelism is teaching. You teach them to observe, to keep, your translation might say, all that I have commanded you. In his love and in his mercy, he has given us these commands in order that we might, in gracious response to him, in grateful response to him, obey what he has asked us to do. We want to please him. This isn't new. This is something we do all the time, even in our own human relationships. If you love somebody and you know that something pleases them, It's your joy to do it. That's the formula. If you love somebody and you know that something pleases them, it is your joy to do it, even if you don't want to. If you in your household have certain rules that have been put into place by somebody 
and you love that person and you want to honor that person and you respect that person, in keeping their commands, you are pleasing them. And the Lord has structured and ordered this universe in the same way. This is his. He owns it. He's got power and authority. He has the right to dictate how it is that that we're supposed to be in order to please him and honor him. And therefore, it becomes our joy to do that. It shouldn't be burdensome. In fact, one of the beautiful statements that he makes about himself, he says, those of you who are heavy laden, those of you who are burdened, come to me and you'll find rest. (laughs) He says, my burden is light. My burden is there because I am the God of the universe. I have the right to impose upon you the expectations, but it's light. And in the days where you can't even seem to carry that, you come back and he says, I'm never going to cast you out. I'm never going to crush you like a smoldering wick. I'm never going to break you like a bruised reed that's sort of bent over and it's just about to break. He says, I'm going to treat you with tenderness and care. I'm going to receive you back. In fact, I'm going to go out of my way to love you through this. Let me just say to all of you who are sitting here today, if you're in that relationship right now to the Lord where you're feeling like you're under his judgment, you're under his wrath, you're under his punishment, let me invite you to do what he invites you to do, and that is to come to him. I know sometimes it's tempting when you feel like he is angry with you to hide. You think, well, he's angry with me, I'm going to hide. He's angry with me, I'm going to go away. He's angry with me, I'm going to distance myself from him. But everything that the scriptures teach us is that in his discipline and in his righteous correction, there is an invitation to him to come back because his immediate response is forgiveness and grace. You see, we treat him sometimes the way we behave to others. We think, if I'm angry with that person, you better not come and talk to me. The last person I want to see right now is you. You better let me cool off. I don't want to see your face for a while. You realize it's the opposite with the Lord. It's the opposite. It is in that righteous discipline that there is an invitation to come back because there is instant and absolute and perfect forgiveness. His love means we can know him. His love means we can love him. His love means we can please him. This is the whole point of Romans 8 that was read to you earlier today. To know him is to love him, is to please him. But it all comes down to this one last point, and that's fellowship. It's our fourth word today, fellowship. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's an amazing statement that Jesus makes. He says that because... The Father is in him and he is in us. The Spirit is in us. That there is going to be an absolutely inseparable fellowship with him until the very end. Until it's all over. This is one of Matthew's favorite words for describing the end, the judgment, the separation of the wheat and the weeds, the separation of the sheep and the goats, the separation of time when the Lord comes back to judge, as he says, the living and the dead, and what Jesus wants his people to know is that he will be with them intimately and personally and perfectly all the way through this, regardless of whether or not anyone else is. It is a perfect fellowship. The Trinity enjoys perfect, unbroken fellowship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and invites us into and therefore indwells us with that same perfect fellowship. 
That's why, as much as the Trinity is a wonderful academic exercise to explore, it also has a very warm and personal and familial and practical and helpful application. Because the same unity enjoyed by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the very unity that Jesus prays the disciples would have during that upper room high priestly prayer is the same unity and joy and fellowship that we get to have with him. That's what he means. That's why Paul can say at the end when he's writing in 2 Timothy that I stood on trial and nobody stood with me but the Lord stood with me. That's why if you're enduring a trial right now, you might feel like no one's standing with you but the Lord is standing with you. Because he is in you and he will carry you through until the very end. He's the one who's going to persevere you until the end. Jude says, blameless with great joy is how you're going to be presented before the holy throne of God one day. Be encouraged. May it influence your worship. May it correct your thinking about his power and authority. May it cover you in a knowledge of his love. And may it reinforce everything because of the joy of the fellowship you have with him. The Heidelberg Catechism begins with this statement, what is your only comfort in life and death? And there is a section right at the end of the answer, and I think it just sums everything up for us beautifully today, and we'll end with this. The writers say this, in answer to that question, wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. The invitation this morning is that because Jesus Christ, the one who at his baptism was declared to be beloved by the Father, who fulfilled all righteousness, because that son who fulfilled all righteousness grants to you his act of obedience when you put your faith in him, he is able to make you a son with him of the Father, a joint heir. And as a result of all that he has done for you, you can, with gratitude, obey him and please him. If you have not ever reconciled that in your own mind, if you haven't ever come to the point where you've said, I now understand and I believe that, I would pray that today would be the day when you make that decision because you can leave here assured that the righteousness that will need to be presented one day before the holy, holy, holy God of the universe is not a righteousness that you're building up for yourself. It's a righteousness that was won for you by Christ. And that's the one that will be presented. And as a result, you will be welcomed in with the same greeting that the Father would welcome in his own son. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for that truth. It's, it's beyond our comprehension. And so I would ask today that you would, by your spirit, apply it to us. Make us true worshipers. Move us off of the indecision and the doubt that can so often plague us. Overwhelm us of your power and authority, but then also surround us with knowledge of your love. And then remind us that you are with us at all times. And may that be the comfort that sustains us, even though the days are often evil, difficult, and short. 
Lord, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, I just pray that we would be those who receive this with great joy, knowing that it symbolizes the sacrifice made once and for all, for all sin, so that all who put their faith in Christ can know with certainty that their sin is paid for in full. Therefore, they can come in to the presence of a holy God, blameless with great joy. We pray these things in your name. Amen.